we've been slowly working our way through what I call the storyline books. That's the, the 11 books in the Old Testament that contain this continuous narrative about God and what he's doing in this world and how he's accomplishing it. And we've basically had four different time periods. We've got this time period that includes Genesis, Exodus, and Numbers, and this is the creation of the world and God's initial work with calling a people for himself, and they were slaves in Egypt, and he brings them out. And then we've got the second period, which is Joshua and Judges, the conquest, the dividing of the land, and then this early history before the kingdom. And then the third period would be Samuel and Kings, and this would be the kingdom time period, where especially we have Saul and David and Solomon and then the kings of the north and the south. And then we have the important exile followed by this time after the exile, which is found in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, what we want to begin is by taking a look at this kingdom time period and especially looking at First and Second Samuel in this session. And then in the next session, we want to look at First and Second Kings. The focus that I want to try to bring in this particular session is to see the impact of sin in leadership and the consequences that it brings to the nation and also how to deal with sin. And then with kings, I want to focus on idolatry because that continues to be an issue for the nation of Israel that continues to lead to their demise. And they just really never seem to overcome this particular issue. And I want to talk about just the big picture of that. So in this time, we want to focus on First and Second Samuel. We are now, when we open up our pages, if you would open up your Bibles to First Samuel, when you get to chapter 1, we are in the transition from the period of the judges, which we were just looking at, and we're moving toward the kingdom, and the main character is going to be Samuel. It's going to be his birth. He's going to be the contrast of Eli and his sons that are wicked. And so in the midst of this, we're going to see a child born, and this child is going to be the one who provides this transition from the judges period into the kingdom. And so Samuel is the last judge. He's a prophet and a priest, but he's also the last judge. So when we think about the judges period, what should come to our mind is the pattern and motif, the thematic framework that the author uses, which is that cycle. The nation of Israel walks with the Lord for a while and then they fall into sin. So the Lord raises up an enemy nation to oppress them and they feel the pain of that. They cry out for deliverance. God in his mercy delivers them and then they walk with the Lord for a while until the cycle continues on again. With that cycle in mind, when we open up our Bibles to 1 Samuel, we must realize that's where we're at. We're in this cycle somewhere. And so Samuel's gonna be a judge that God is going to use, but this time the judge is not gonna be the one that brings deliverance. The judge is gonna be the one who introduces the kingdom. Now, there are two major points that I want us to pull out of this book. Basically, when you think about the structure, we've got Samuel in that transition, and then we've got the life of Saul, and then David, there's an overlap. Saul is king, but then David is anointed. So there's this overlap between the two. And then we eventually see David die at the end of 1 Kings. A lot of happenings take place in the kingdom during this time. It's much better than the time period of the judges. You actually get the feeling that the kingdom is on the rise now. And when we think about what happened in Joshua, that they were able to take the land and the blessings that were to come from that, you begin to feel a little bit of those blessings, especially under the rulership of King David. 
God begins to prosper them. They begin to experience his blessing. And so some good things are happening when we come to this end of this book. Kings is going to pick that up. Solomon, those are the glory days of the kingdom. The, the, the kingdom is going to be at its very height of prominence and impact in the world. And so we're going to just continue this upward move. But there's some issues that we want to pull out of this. One of the first major points I want to make is, again, we see a patient God working with a people bent on rebellion. We may be out of the time period of the judges, but it doesn't mean that we are now absent from a people bent on rebellion and then the sin that they bring. And we see that right away at the beginning of the book. Israel's in struggle. They've got a lot of problems going on. And so in the midst of this, they decide to request of God that they want a king. So they, they make this request for a king. Chapter 8, we see this where in verse 6, it says that the thing was, was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said to him, give us a king to judge us, because that's what they've done. They, they've asked for a king. Now, it's displeasing to Samuel for a reason. The king was a part of God's plan. So why was it displeasing to Samuel? It's been a part of God's plan all along. When we look at Deuteronomy chapter 17, this again is Moses giving these sermons to the second generation before they go into the land. We're in that second sermon, the rules and regulations. And he clearly talks about a king that's gonna come one day. Chapter 17, verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and Israel's there now, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall certainly do so. Set a king over you, whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen. You shall set as a king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Now notice, can't be a foreigner. Now there's gonna be some other conditions, other stipulations. Verse 16, moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. And so it goes on and gives a positive in verse 18. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandments to the right or the left in order that he and his sons may continue long in, in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So even back in the law, where Moses reiterates the law to the second generation after the exodus out of Egypt, there is this concept that when they get into the land, they live in it, they possess it, that they are going to have a king. Very clear regulations about the king, what he's not to do and what he is to do. And again, building on what we just read or what we just studied in Joshua and Judges, it's important to see, even with kingship, the centrality of the law. What was it that made a king? It was one who wrote out a copy of the law and who read it and meditated on it 
and lived by it, did not depart to the right or to the left, but they kept the words of the law. The centrality of the word is going to be there as well. So a king has always been a part of the plan. So why does Samuel say in chapter 8 in verse 5 that this was displeasing to him? It's because Israel's request for a king is for the wrong reasons. It's for the wrong reasons. It's not as if they, they are um, going along with God's plan and now God's upset with his own plan. God is upset with their reasoning for why they're going to have a king. And this is their reason. The reason is simply, this. remember when the cycle of the judges, oppression, and then cry out, judge delivers, but then there's disobedience again, and then there's oppression. And Israel has been caught in this cycle for 300 plus years. And their belief is, as they look at the nations around them and they recognize this oppression, this oppression, this oppression, their belief is, hey, if we had a king like all the other nations around us, we could have this problem solved. We just need a king. Now let's step back and think for a moment. What is the cause of their oppression? Why is God raising up enemy nations to oppress them? It's a consequence of their disobedience. What Israel needs is not a king like all the nations around them. Israel needs repentance. That's what they need. But their thinking is messed up right now rather than in the midst of their oppression, this painful circumstance in their life is good from God because God intends for them to feel vulnerable and thirsty and to turn their hearts back to him and to seek his blessing. Rather than do that, they turn further away from God and say, just give us a king. And ultimately what they say is, hey, we want to be like all the other nations. We want to be just like everybody else. If we were just like everybody else, we might have some success. Their thinking is if their oppression would be removed, their oppression would be removed if they had a king to lead them in the battle. And ultimately, this is a rejection of the Lord. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 6, Samuel, when they say to Samuel, give us a king to judge us, Samuel is displeased with this and he prayed to the Lord and this is the Lord's response. Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you for, now notice this, they have not rejected you, they've rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who shall reign over them. God's not opposed to this particular process of choosing a king, of having a king over them. God is opposed to the, what, the reasoning that they have behind it because it's a rejection of him. They don't want to turn to the Lord in the midst of their pain and say, Lord, deliver us. We need you. We want to be followers of you. They turn away from the Lord and say, give us a king. It's a rejection of the Lord. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 10 in verse 19. But you today rejected your God. Now notice how God is described. Who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses. God is the one who delivers you. You've rejected him, yet you have said, no, 
but set a king over us. No, we don't want this deliverer. Just give us a king. So rather than turn to God in repentance, they want a king like the nations around them. One more time, just a little bit more of information is found in chapter 12 and verse 12. Again, we get a, a bigger picture of exactly what was going on. It says, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. And notice these next words. Here's a theological point. Although the Lord your God was your king. So this is the picture. Remember, we're in this cycle. Enemy nations being raised up to oppress the Israelites and they're under that oppression. It's painful, it's difficult and they feel it and they cry out to the Lord. He raises up a judge who delivers them. They walk with the Lord for a while until they fall into sin again. They go down a wicked path. The Lord raises up enemy nation. Right now, Israel is in a situation where if you read the first few chapters of 1 Samuel, the priesthood is corrupt. Coming out of the time for the judges, dark days, wickedness abounds. And now the priesthood is corrupt. They aren't following the law, even in the priesthood. And so now they see Nahash, the sons of Ammon, coming up against them. What, what does this mean? If we understand what's going on in the biblical text, God is now raising up an enemy nation to oppress them. He's raising up the Ammonites. They're gonna come in and oppress Israel. Israel's afraid. They know what's, up in, what's in store for them. And so they cry out, give us a king. And what um, Samuel is trying to say to them is, no, God is your deliverer. He's the one you need to turn to. But they don't. They're bent on rebellion and continue to move away from the Lord. But we see a patient God still. Even in the midst of this, God has every reason just say to, de to deny their request and bring in the Ammonites for a great slaughter because Israel's heart's turned away from them. They are rejecting him. They're delivered. They're saying, no, set a king over us. No. And Samuel's saying, he's your deliverer. No, set a king over us. God has every reason to pour out wrath but look at God's patience in working with this stubborn people. Back in chapter nine, in verse 15. Now a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed to Samuel these words. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And he shall deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people because their cry has come up to me. What? Their cry has come up to me. In the midst of all their rebellion, the Lord says their cry has come up to me. I've heard them and I'm gonna bring them deliverance. Even in chapter eight, we saw earlier, they said to Samuel, give us a king. And the Lord said, listen to them. They have not rejected you. They've rejected me like they've always done. But listen to their voice. Give them a king to reign over them. But I'm gonna be involved in this process. I'm the one that's gonna lead the way. God is so patient with his people. Now, why? It's because he wants relationship. And so it's not that God is overlooking all of this and saying, no, I'm not gonna look, I'm not gonna look, I'm not gonna look. This holy God is patiently working with his people, hanging in there with them and all their frailty and all their rebellion and all their disobedience. God continues to maintain a relationship with them. He's working out his plan. Israel's not gonna stop his plan. Their sinfulness is not gonna stop it. Sinful humanity will not stop the forward progress of God's work in this world. It's gonna continue to move forward. 
And the king is going to be a part of this. God is allowing this plan to move forward because ultimately in his plan, even though Israel's being sinful and rebellious and rejecting him, God is allowing the plan to move forward because in his bigger picture, his greater plan, a king is going to play a very strategic part. The messianic king, the king who's going to sit on the throne and rule and reign forever, who's going to restore righteousness and justice and bring about this eternal kingdom, completely obedient to God who sits on his throne. God is working on his plan, and this is a part of it. And so he puts a king on the throne. Eventually, that king is going to be Messiah, who's going to rule in the reign throughout all generations for his people. So a patient God is working with his people. So as we read the book of Samuel, we see this patience once again. But what we also see is the impact of sin. And it's important for us to understand, again, we've got to step back from the book. Basically, in this book, once we get past Samuel, we get into the kingship, we're going to look at Saul's life and we're going to look at David's life. If we were to go on into the book of Kings, we would also see Solomon's life and then we would see the lives of all the kings of the north and the south and then even the nation itself. Just stepping back and trying to find patterns and motifs cycles that are taking place, especially in Saul's life and David's life, we see a cycle that's really important for us to understand. It's the impact of sin. It's the result of not obeying the Lord. Again, let's go back to Psalm 1, which we just looked at in our last session. What is the difference between a blessed man and a wicked man? It is the centrality of the word. It's hearing the word. It's meditating on the word. It's delighting in the word. God has given his word so men and women could know blessing on the face of this earth. And when people decide not to follow God's word, there's gonna be consequences. And so Samuel wants us to see that in Saul's life and in David's life. And there's a pattern in both of their lives, where when God puts Saul on the throne and David on the throne, what we see is this rise. We see this obedience that brings blessing. And when Saul gets on the throne, he brings deliverance and their stability to the nation. They drive out all the enemies, enemies that have been plaguing the nation throughout the time period of the judges through the life of Saul. God allows him to be a deliverer who brings peace that Israel had not known previous to this point. There's this blessing, obedience that brings blessing. And we see this throughout, especially chapters nine through 12, deliverance, deliverance, deliverance. But then in chapters 13 through 15, there's a leveling off of this prosperity, this upward rise of Saul's life. And it's because of sin. And these, there's two instances of sin that are particularly important that the author highlights. And the first one is improper sacrifice. Saul is supposed to be waiting for Samuel to come and bring a sacrifice. He's impatient. And so he offers the sacrifice on his own. The second one is where he's told to go into a battle and he's to utterly destroy under the ban. Remember that from Joshua and Judges. It was under the ban. They were totally destroyed and he didn't. He saves the oxen and the sheep. And so that's partial obedience. And that's a problem. So we've seen this obedience brings blessing, this rise. And then all of a sudden, these prominent sins in Saul's life. And then from there, 
to the end of his life, chapters 16 through 31 of 1 Samuel, we see the decline. And during that time, we see the impact of sin on his life, especially in his relationship to David. He's an angry man, throwing spears at him. He's bitter. He feels this rivalry. And Saul is not walking in the way of the Lord in these days. So we see this rise, and then we see this turning point because of sin, and then this decline in his life. We see the same thing in David's life. See, this is the pattern. In David's life, we see the beginning when he and Saul are in conflict, especially towards the end of 1 Samuel, verses, chapter 16 through 21. We see the conflict between the two of them. And Saul's always the evil guy. He's always the wicked guy. David is a man after God's own heart. And he's always the contrast of Saul. Twice, David could take his life take Saul's life, he has every reason to, and he doesn't. Why? Because he's one who's entrusting himself to a faithful creator and doing what's right. He's waiting on the, law, on the Lord. He does not take the throne for himself, even though he's anointed and it's rightfully his. David is the beautiful one in this story. And so we see this obedience that brings blessing. God is watching over David's life, allowing him to prosper and all the way up into 2 Samuel chapter 10, we see this rise, obedience that brings blessing. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see this turning point in David's life, the sin with Bathsheba and the adultery and the murder that David commits. There's a turning point there. And then we see the decline in David's life. God's not done with him, but we see a decline, especially the impact of sin in his family and the warfare that's there. David's, the end of David's life is not this one of peace and rest and contentment. It's one of turmoil and difficulty until he dies in 1 Kings chapter two. That's the pattern. That is what the author wants us to see with reference to the impact of sin. When there's obedience, then there's blessing. And you see that in Saul and David's life, but for both of them, because of sin, a turning away from the word of the Lord, there is this turning point that leads to a decline in their life as they begin to experience the impact of sin in their life, in their midst. And so we could go on to Solomon's life too. And we could see the same thing there. In Solomon's life, he's put on the throne and there's this rise and we see unprecedented peace and prosperity in the nation of Israel. Silver is as common as stones. It's abounding in wealth. The queen of Sheba comes to see the storehouses. Solomon's the wisest man of all time. But then there's a turning point. With all this wisdom, with all this unprecedented wealth and power for the nation of Israel, what we find in Solomon's life is his hearts, his wives turn his heart away to follow other gods. And that's a turning point. And then we see the decline. And eventually because of Solomon's sin, the, the, the kingdom is taken from him and it's divided in two. That's the consequences that Solomon has to live with in his life. So even in Solomon's life, we see obedience brings blessing, turning point, decline. What about for the kings of the north and the south? Just continuing this thought throughout the books of Kings. The kings in the north and the south, we just go through the kings of the north and the south, rapid fire. We don't spend a lot of time. The text will only slow down a little bit to show us a glimpse of revival. But outside of that, it's north, south, north. It's all over the place. Lots of kings, very little information. 
But there is information we have about each king. This king was either good or did good in the eyes of the Lord or he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. What is the measurement of a good king? It's one who follows the Lord, one who submits to the Lord. What is the measurement of an evil king? It's one who does evil by not following the Lord. The disobedience that brings curse. And so Israel is racked with curse throughout this time. We've got opposition to the throne. We've got murder. We've got um, coup attempts where they take over the throne. We've got family infighting that takes place. The northern, the southern kings, all over the place. The impact of sin is so evident. And then when we step back and see the bigger picture, and we recognize with the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel who has known this blessing along the way, but has continued to battle sin in the end, realizes the worst of judgments. They are taken out of the land and taken into exile. That's the impact of sin. And it's found throughout this story, patterns, motifs, themes that the author of this book wants us to see. And again, we're reminded, listening to God Listen up, Israel. Incline your heart. Impress the word on your heart. Listening to God brings blessing. It brings joy in life. Rebelling against God brings devastating effects on one's life. And so we see that played out in the characters of especially Samuel, but also Samuel and Kings. Now, sin is something that the Old Testament has made painfully clear no one can escape. Let me remind you, back in the book of Genesis, when there's such a spiraling down of sin that we've, we, we just see the effects of this on all people. For instance, Adam and Eve, they were sinners and then they have children. Are their children now without sin? No, we've got a sin problem there too. And we see generations continue on until we get through at least 10 plus generations and we see that God looks down and sees that the the intent of man's heart is only evil continually. There is no one that is escaping. And so God has to bring judgment. I mean, we've just seen sin is everywhere. And so we've got righteous Noah. God puts him on an ark. And so we destroy all the wicked people, right? In the flood, everything had breath of life gone, except for Noah. Noah gets off the ark. Is the sin problem gone? It's not. We still got a sin problem. Sin is a problem. So it's no surprise that even in God's anointed kings, there would still be a sin problem. Sin affects all of humanity, but we must understand the impact of sin. So the author wants us to see that. It's worth following the Lord. It's good to follow the Lord. But there's a, there's a, there's a last point that I really want to draw attention to. Even though there's a sin problem, there are different ways to deal with sin. And this is where Saul and David provide a contrast for us. If we took time to go through the turning point in each of their lives, for Saul, that would be 1 Samuel 13 through 15, especially the improper sacrifice and the partial obedience. And if we did that for David's life, the turning point especially would be 2 Samuel 11 and 12, the sin with Bathsheba. We can learn from those stories that there, is a, there are different ways to deal with sin when it is confronted in someone's life. So let's think about David and Saul. For both of them, they are confronted with their sin. All humanity is sinful, but we have different ways of dealing with it. So when Saul is confronted with his sin, we can see a number of examples that we could point to. But Samuel comes to Saul 
and says, hey, what's going on here? And Saul says, verse 20 of chapter 15, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, the sheep, the ox, and the choices of things devoted to destruction, in other words, under the ban and should have been destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. See, this is where it was partial obedience. They were to destroy everything that had breath or life. And so what does Samuel confront Saul here? And what is Saul saying ultimately? He's shifting the blame. Here's the all-powerful king who can say whatever he wants and people will do whatever he wants. And Saul says, I mean, Samuel says, what's the problem? And Saul's response is, well, the people did it. They decided to do this. I, I, I don't have anything to do with it. See, this has been a problem all the way back into the garden with Adam and Eve. It wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me, God. In fact, it has something to do with you. You gave me this woman. And, no, woman, it wasn't me, it was the serpent. And here's Saul doing the same thing. He's confronted with the sin and he blame shifts. He shifts the blame to someone else. We also see another way that Saul responds to this. In chapter 13, in verse 11, Samuel comes to Saul Saul has performed this sacrifice because he got tired of waiting for Samuel. But Samuel says to him in 1 Samuel 13, verse 11, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. He justifies what he did. There's a little bit of blame shifting here too because Sam, you didn't show up. The appointed days, remember the time frame? You were supposed to be here on such and such a date and do this and you didn't. And then I saw the Philistines, they were coming down on us. I was thinking about the people and you know they would defeat us. I hadn't asked the favor of the Lord yet. What was I supposed to do? I forced myself to do this. And he justifies what he did. We see another example of that back in chapter 15. In verse 15, Saul says, they've brought them, Samuel says, What's, where did these sheep come from? And Saul said, they brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we've utterly destroyed. You see how he justifies that? The Lord says, destroy everything. Saul decides to keep back certain animals and he justifies it by saying, we did it for the Lord. Aren't you proud of us, Samuel? He justifies his sin. We see that later in verse 24 too. Saul says to Samuel, okay, I've sinned. I have indeed transgressed command of the Lord your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Just justifying. It was the people who brought this on me. We also see one more example of what Saul does. He blame shifts, he justifies it, and he also minimizes the sin. In chapter 15, verse 25, he says, all right, I've done this thing. I listened to the people. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And when you read through that whole story, it's not like Saul's heart is really inclined toward the Lord. He's minimizing what took place. He's basically saying, Samuel, get over it. For, let's, let's get pardoned and let's get on with life. He doesn't see the seriousness of what he's done. He has profaned the name of the Lord. He blame shifts. He justifies. He minimizes. And when you begin to see how Saul handles his sin and then you compare it with how David handles this, and we see an amazing contrast. 
And I think it's part of what the author wants us to see in this book. We have to go over to chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 11 to see David's sin. This is the sin with Bathsheba. The kings are out to war. David stays home. He's up on the housetop looking around, sees Bathsheba. And ultimately, what I want you to understand about this story is this is an abuse of power. That's what's going on here. The king is on the rooftop and he sees this woman Bathsheba and says, I want her, I'm king, I have the power, I have the authority, I can have her for myself. You, go get her for me, bring her to me. It's an abuse of power. It's a sexual sin. You got a lot of things going on here. Someone else's wife, but David is ultimately abusing the power that God has given him. He is a king under the authority of the Lord. He is not to elevate himself above his countrymen. That's what Deuteronomy 17 said, but yet he has, he has power. And so he acts for his benefit at the expense of his people. What makes this story even more just awful is when you read in the book of Chronicles that Uriah, Bathsheba's wife, was one of David's mighty men. And what that means is Uriah would have died for David. He would have gladly given his life for the king. He was one of the mighty men. He had done wonderful things for David and for the kingdom. And David takes his wife and commits adultery. So that's the scene right here. How does David deal with it? Well, before Nathan confronts him, all the illustrations we looked at for Saul were where um, Samuel came along and confronted him. Before we see Nathan actually confront David, we want to see that before this takes place, David manipulates the situation. Here he is. He's in a sinful situation. And what is he going to do? He does two things. The first thing he does is he invites, invites Uriah back from the front lines and says, hey, Uriah, give me a report of what's going on on the front line. And so they sit and talk for a little bit. And then David sends him home and says, you know, while you're here, why don't you go down and have a little fun with your wife? Because Bathsheba's pregnant, David thinks I can get Uriah into the home, they can have sex, and the big cover-up will be solved. When he comes back from war and she has a baby, well, they'll remember the weekend that they had together. And so David is trying to manipulate the situation. And Uriah does not go with this particular plan. So David invites him back to the house again. They have a little discussion again, talk about news and events. And then David gets him drunk and sends him back home. Uriah still won't go in because of his honor. His fellow soldiers are on the front line. He refuses to have this kind of fun back at, at the home front when they're on the battlefront and they're giving their lives and laying down their lives. So he doesn't. So David's plan is foiled. He's trying to manipulate the, pro, the, the, the situation, but it doesn't work. And so the second thing he does to manipulate the situation is put Uriah on the front lines. And so with Uriah on the front lines, we've got a problem. Uriah is gonna be put right up against the wall. And the issue is so that they will cast stones down on him so that he'll die. I mean, David wants him put in a position of death a death so that he will get rid of the problem. I'll either try to get him to have sex with his wife so she'll, he'll think that he made her pregnant or I'll just get rid of his life. Adultery and murder. That's what David does ahead of time. His plan works. Uriah is killed. Bathsheba's brought into his home, but that doesn't take care of the sin problem. It's a cover-up, but God still knows and so what we have in this particular chapter, though, is when Nathan comes 
to David. He tells him a parable and David gets angry because it's this man, this rich man who takes advantage of a poor man and David says, that man deserves to die. And then Nathan says, you're the man. And what is David's response? After being confronted with his sin, David's response is beautiful because he responds in repentance. He listens to what the Lord has to say through Nathan the, pro the prophet, and David owns it. He's done all this manipulative stuff. There's someone dead in the process, but when he's confronted with the sin, he responds. There's a contrast between what Saul and David do when they're confronted with sin. Saul blame shifts, he justifies, he minimizes. David repents. And so something else that we need to see from the theology of these books is that repentance is what we are to do with sin. Sin is a problem. God made the tabernacle and the whole sacrificial system so there would be a way to deal with sin. Sin is gonna be there, but we've got to learn to repent of it and to deal with it in a way that pleases God. The ultimate point that we see here is people are rebellious. People are sinful. People are depraved. Yet, God provides a way for reconciliation. Over and over again, he's inviting relationship even to those who have failed. And so God sends Nathan to David because he wants relationship. He wants David to make it right. He is a merciful God. David, in this situation, deserves death. Why? Because he, number one, has committed adultery. That man shall die. Number two, he's brought about a murder of Uriah, one of his mighty men. That's deserving of death. Two times David has committed a sin worthy, deserving of death, and God extends mercy to him. God is a merciful God. He continues to bring this to his people. Now, I want us to learn a little bit about repentance before we finish today. I want us to think about what, what is repentance in our lives. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 25, I wanna pay attention to some words here. Then David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you. Do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. In other words, don't let this thing bother you. And then when we continue to move down through the story, that's David's response to the situation. But in verse 27, notice what notice what's said there. But the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's the same word when you look at it in Hebrew. Do not let this thing, verse 25, be evil in your eyes. Verse 27, but the thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. From David's perspective, he's saying, don't let this thing be, don't let there be anything wrong about this. That's his perspective on the situation. God's perspective on the situation is there is something wrong with it. It was evil what took place. And that's very important for us to see in the text because for us to be brought to a place of repentance, we must see life not how we see it, but how we see it must be consistent with how God sees life. David has a different perspective on the situation. Don't worry about it. God, though, says you need to worry about it. There's something wrong there. Those two have to be brought together. And when Nathan confronts him, down in chapter 12, verse 13, 
David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He comes to a place of recognizing I have done evil in his eyes. And we can see the process of this throughout the Psalms where David oftentimes wrote out of his heart and what he was feeling, what he was experiencing. We could look at Psalm 32. It tells us clearly that David was wasting away during that time, that he could feel the pain of what it meant to be one who was hiding sin, one who had manipulated a situation. Psalm 32 talks about that. But I wanna focus on Psalm 51 because it's in Psalm 51 that we find the words that we need to see. The same words that we see in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Psalm 51, this is David, and many believe that this was the prayer that was offered after Nathan came to him. He says in verse one, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Now notice verse four, against you, you only have I sinned and, here's our phrase, done what is evil in your sight. You see, David comes to a place where his perspective was, hey, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. Don't worry about it. But God's perspective was, it is evil in his eyes. There is something to worry about. And in Psalm 51, David comes to a place where he now is seeing it as God sees it. He now is having his eyes opened up and he is seeing the situations. God, it is evil. I've done what is evil in his sight. David now aligns his heart with the Lord. He now begins to see the situation as the Lord does. That's what repentance is. Repentance is to come to a place in our lives where we see life as God does and we seek to put our hearts in alignment with him and his character and his purposes and his word in this world. And David does that. It's a beautiful process that takes place in his life. And God allows that to take place so that reconciliation can be there, so that fellowship can be restored. God is a merciful God. But if we find ourselves in a situation like Saul, shifting the blame or justifying or minimizing our sin, we will never know that reconciliation, that fellowship that can come. It's by seeing it as God sees it, not justifying it. It's by seeing it like God sees it, not shifting the blame. It's by seeing it as God sees it, not minimizing it. If it's evil in God's eyes, then it's to be evil in our eyes and we're to deal with it before a holy God because we wanna be in fellowship with him. That's the place that David is brought to. It wasn't evil in his eyes. It was evil in the eyes of God. And then it became evil in David's eyes as well. That's the moment of repentance. He aligns his heart with the Lord. And that's what God calls us to as well. And the writer, the author of Samuel, wants us to see the way sin impacts. This obedience brings blessing, but sin brings a turning point. Then the impact of sin in their individual lives, in the lives of their family, in the lives of the people, but then we've also got this sense that with this sin, there are different ways to deal with it. And the writer lays out there for us certain stories that help us understand the way Saul deals with it, contrasted with Saul, is the way David deals with it. And David, not only is he a man after God's own heart, but as a sinful man, he now is held up as the example of how we are, are to deal with sin in our life. 
we can get back in the right relationship, we've got to see life as God sees it. Now, let me bring it full circle with what we were talking about last time. There is no way that we're going to see life as God sees it until we fill our hearts and minds with his word. That's why it's the delight in his law. That's why it's meditating on it day and night that brings about a blessed man. That's why a blessed man who delights and meditates is like a tree transplanted by rivers of water, yielding its leaf, yielding its fruit in its season. That's why. And that's what brings this about in David's life as well. Remember the shepherd boy who would sit and meditate on the word of God? The king who would read the law, who understood who God is and his purposes. And so when he's confronted, he has the ability to see, I've done what is evil in the eyes of the Lord and repent and restore that relationship. What is it that leads to that? It's because the word is hid in his heart. Number one, so that he might not sin, but if he does sin, so that he has a heart that longs for reconciliation with God. That's why Psalm 32, we didn't look at it, but it's so important. David says, I was wasting away. And many people believe that Psalm was written from that time that Uriah had been killed and Bathsheba was brought into the home before Nathan confronted him. He was burdened with his sin, but God in his mercy makes a way. And David aligns himself with God's heart and God forgives him. Now, there's still consequences and they played themselves out in David's life and it's tragic, but God extends forgiveness to people who seek it. Now, one final point I wanna say as we pull out of this book because it's incredible to see the impact of sin. It's incredible to see a merciful God that allows for repentance so relationship with him can be restored, but we must not forget that we are to extend that mercy to others as well. That in the same way God forgives us, a sinful, depraved, bent on rebellion kind of people, stiff-necked, in the same way that God extends forgiveness to us, we are to extend that to others. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable to people. Peter says to the Lord, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother how many times can he sin against me and I still forgive him? Seven times? That seemed like a lot to Peter. Seven? And Jesus goes on and says, I don't say to you seven, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he'd begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. But since he didn't have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me. I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down began to entreat him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. He was unwilling, however, but went out and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to the Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? 
And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, each, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. This incredible mercy and forgiveness that God extends to us, we're to be offering that to others as well. The contrast of the way Saul dealt with his sin and David dealt with his sin. David met the forgiveness of the Lord. And as we come to know Christ, we have met the forgiveness of the Lord. We owe him everything and he cancels the debt. And what does it mean for us to extend that to others? People who wrong us, people who cause us pain. And we offer that to them because we've been forgiven much. We forgive much. It's a lesson to be learned coming through the book of Samuel. People can be rebellious and sinful and depraved. Yet God provides a way for reconciliation. May we be the kind of people that offer that reconciliation to others as well. Now, we've already begun the process of working through the beginnings of kings. We've looked at Solomon and his life. There's a, this is rise in his life, this obedience that leads to blessing. But then there's a turning point. There's going to be consequences to sin, the northern and southern kings, good or evil. And then we see the nation as a whole, because of their bent on rebellion, they end up in exile at the end of kings. But there's a lot more for us to learn about kings. There is something in particular that causes difficulty for the nation of Israel, something in particular that continues to trip them up and lead them down a path to destruction. It's the issue of idolatry. So in our next session, what we want to do is open up the book of Kings and briefly think about what's going on in these books. Just a little introduction. And then we want to dive into the issue of idolatry so that we can understand if it was true for Israel, it's true for us as well. What is it? What is it? How does it get a stranglehold on our life? And what does God want to do in the midst of all of this?